good morning, everyone. Um, uh, if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 7, we'll be continuing our study in uh, uh, John's Apocalypse. Um, before we get started, let me open us in a word of prayer. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, we do worship you, and we praise you, especially this day as we study this text uh, from John. We praise you for your amazing work of preserving your church, keeping hold of your saints. Lord God, we, as we reflect back upon our experience of this past week, confess how often we were sinful how often we stumbled, how often we uh, veered from the path of righteousness. But as we know, we stand in the presence of the throne, not based on our own merit, but as those who've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ, that we have been washed clean through the blood of the Lamb. That's the only hope that we have to avoid the divine wrath that you so justly pour out upon sin. We ask now as we open your word that you would give us um, insight into it, not just uh, intellectually so we can know the scriptures, but that we would know them in our hearts, that we would uh, use it as a mirror to show us the ways in which we're lacking and ways we need to set right, but also as uh, a window that shows us where our true hope, our true heavenly hope lies. Help us to not just hear these words, but to be doers of them, that we might serve as your church, witnessing both here and to the ends of the earth. Give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear. Give us wills to enact what you teach us by your servant John. We ask it in Christ's name, by the power of your spirit. Amen. All right. So today we, we've, we're up to Revelation chapter 7. Thus far we've been covering about a chapter of Revelation each week. And I've been thinking about it uh, this week. In one sense, that's too much because... We have to gloss over some of those rich details that John's stunning visions unfold. But in another sense, a chapter a week is not fast enough. Uh, we disrupt the flow of the book by splitting up our reading this week. And you know, having this week lag between looking at chapters, we can miss some of the connections that unite one section to the next. And as we examine chapter 7, our passage for this week, I want us to be especially aware of those ties to chapter 6. So last week, just recap, um, and I know some of you weren't able to be here last week, so I'll give a brief summary of some of the things we talked about. We looked at John's vision of the opening of the first six seals of that seven-sealed scroll that was in God's hand. Uh, the first four seals unleashed four horsemen who brought forth conquest war, famine, and pestilential death. The fifth seal showed the martyrs under the altar crying out for God's just vengeance. 
And the sixth seal revealed the dissolution of creation, and you know we saw all that sort of uh, undoing of the created order, the heavens splitting apart, mountains crumbling, islands disappearing. And the chapter ended with humanity from king to slave, fleeing from the wrath of God while calling out to the hills and the mountains, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? And I thought a lot about their question there at the end of the chapter. Who can stand? And um, I want us to think of that question today as we look at chapter 7. Who can stand before the wrath of God? So let's look at chapter 7. I'll read the text and then we'll sort of work our way through it. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascend, wait, ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon. 12,000 from the tribe of Levi. 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar. 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun. 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water. And God 
will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Wow, what a great picture. Um, and let's work our way to that great picture. So starting off at the beginning, we're, we're shown four angels holding back the four winds of the earth. So what are these four winds that the angels hold back? Are these, is this some new force that's being held back on the earth? Or is this referring back to those four horsemen we saw in chapter 6? What do you think? New force, old force. Okay, uh, why, why do you think it refers to that? Okay, so just as we saw those four horsemen last week um, as inflicting harm upon humanity, so we see these four winds or four spirits here um, being, in, uh, being with uh, refrain from inflicting harm yet. Okay, James, you had your hand up there. Okay, so you want to say same, same group of folk? <laughs> For those of you who weren't here last week, James really wanted to see these as good angels. So. <laughs> Servants of God. They're doing God's will. Okay, so we have this picture of, um, of these, if we think these four winds are related to the four horsemen, and it's actually interesting if you look to, um, I mentioned last week, and we won't turn there, but Zechariah has a similar sort of set of four horses doing God's will, they also are related to the four winds um, and sort of described uh, in uh, this sort of equating of horse and wind happens in that book as well. So there's, um, uh, he's playing on uh, Old Testament passages here and creating this. But it's important for us to sort of see this. Instead of seeing the events of chapter 7 as being subsequent to what we saw in chapter 6, to see it more as parallel. Um, so, you know, we're not looking at a separate time post-chapter 6 of, you know, this is some new calamity that's being reframed, but it's sort of taking a pause, going back, and looking at uh, that same process, but now with a different perspective. Um, so chapter 7... Uh, is explaining how the saints persevere through that, uh, those uh, unfolding, unbreaking of the seals that we saw in chapter 6. And um, in this chapter, we also have seal. Again, it's sort of interesting to read these chapters sort of squished together back to back. So in chapter 6, we have these seals being broken. And uh, all these uh, historical events are unfolding because of the breaking of the seals. In chapter 7, we have sealing being used in a different sense. We have people being sealed. So I want to start with sort of the big question, and then we can move to the specifics. What, is, what does that mean in this chapter? But let's just start with the big one. What is a seal? What is a seal in the sense that we saw it last week in, in these breaking of seals? What's the seal we see in this chapter? And is this, you know, are we seeing different senses of sealing or are we seeing the same kind of sealing operating in two different ways? 
the Glovers both raise their hands at the same time. I'll go with the, uh, the fair one. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I knew that was coming. Okay, so seal in the sense of marking someone with a particular identity. You know, uh, you know the same word um, in Greek is, is used for a signet. So anybody have a signet ring? <laughs> you know, you, you press that, that ring into the wax and it leaves the impression that identifies you as the uh, uh, sealer of that document. So in its authentication of identity. Uh, good. What else does a seal or what else is a seal? What else does it do? Okay, we're, we're, we're actually going to, in a little bit, um, turn to some New Testament, other New Testament language where sealing language is used in uh, that kind of, maybe not sacramental sense, but in a, a, a spiritual sense of sealing. Okay, so seal in the sense of, of protection. Uh, the, the contents of a sealed document are protected. We know that they haven't been tampered with because the seal is unbroken. Once the broken uh, once the seal's broken, those contents are open. They're now uh, unleashed in a sense. Um, a couple weeks ago, we talked about um, uh, you know, this picture of the seven sealed document um, mirrors a Roman wheel, will that was often sealed with um, the seven, the seals of the seven witnesses. And you know, once you open the will, oh, I want to say wheel, because I'm from the South, those natural inclinations sort of want to come out sometimes. <laughs> when you break the seals on a will, you know, the contents of that document are, are not only revealed, but now they're enacted. Um, so it has that kind of performative aspect of breaking a seal. So we have seal as authentication, um, identifying someone's particular identity, um, seals as protection, keeping things um, safe, um, and once they're open, they're, you know, their contents are disclosed and enacted. Any other sense of sealing? Yeah, that it's, it's a mark of, of, of importance. You know, you don't just seal the grocery list. <laughs> or you do if you, uh, like yesterday we had a, a, a session, we had a meeting where we were going over our bylaws and uh, the lawyer said we, we, we had a section in our bylaws about the official corporate seal of Redeemer Presbyterian Church and the lawyer said, you're not required to have that anymore. So I, being the person I am, initiated, who has the seal? Can I use it? <laughs> be really fun to, uh, but yeah, seals, you know, you think of even now, you know, things that I need to have, you know, sealed or notarized, you know, something that really authenticates the, the contents there. So it, it marks not just um, the identity of an object, but also its importance. Good. Yeah, and on both ends, both in the unsealing of the sealed um, book or scroll that we, we saw, we, we've been seeing the last couple weeks, and also in the action of sealing uh, these people. Um, anything else we want to say? Yeah, Mark. <laughs> they had written, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it wasn't on clay tablets, no. Bad joke, I mean. Yeah. <laughs> You're right. <laughs>
You can tell we're family because that's the exact kind you know. In my family, you leave something out on the table like that, somebody's jumping on it. <laughs> um, so, that, so I think we've captured a lot of the general meaning of sealing, uh, authentication, designating of ownership, protection, uh, signifying importance. Um, so what, what does it mean for people to be sealed? So now we got our general picture of seals, and you know, we've talked a lot about letters and documents. So what does it mean for, uh, as we see here, um, people being sealed with the living God, with the seal of living God, um, sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads? Okay, so having the seal upon them protects them. Yeah, and let me just, uh, we don't have to turn there. Um, I've got it, I think, typed out. Um, a great example of that comes from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Um, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And later on in the same book, in, in chapter 4, verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So we think of um, that, again, that protection that comes from being sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. Yeah, later in this chapter, we're going to see, and in future chapters, we're going to see the sealed, the ones who are sealed are the ones who are there in the presence of God. So it's, it's giving access, in a sense. So it's, it's protection, it's the marking of the Holy Spirit, it's providing access to God. What else do we understand by sealing of people? Yeah, that it's uh, this, uh, you know, it's not, <laughs> it's not a self-sealing. It's, you know, uh, this, this redemptive act being enacted by God upon his people. Um, that God and God's agents are the ones doing the sealing here. Uh, good. Otherwise? Uh, and on that, um, to, this is again... Um, uh, just sort of interesting extra biblical thing. Um, uh, it was in many parts of the ancient Roman world, you marked slaves on the forehead with some kind of identifying mark or seal to show ownership, to, and that gives that slave access. Um, so in that same sense of sort of, you know, we know that slave is allowed to be here because his owner is, we know who his owner is. It gives protection. No one else can claim that slave because that slave has been marked. Um, and it's interesting, uh, I think, particularly here because um, the ones who are being sealed in verse 3, until we've sealed the servants of our God, the word servants there, same word for slave. Um, we could easily, just as easily translate it, sealed the slaves of God. Um, so to think of it in the sense of being marked, being um, set apart for redemptive purposes. Um, yeah, I think there is a sense of, of, um, of finality 
here. And especially as we think in terms, uh, as this chapter unfolds, I think there's this, this contrast, again, between where we ended last week, where we, last week we saw people, you know, running for the hills, <laughs> looking for any place to shelter themselves from the wrath of God. And here we have people, uh, you know, the contrast we have at the end of this chapter. Um, you know, these ones that, you know, stand before the throne of God, serve him day and night, uh, hungering no more, thirsting no more, the sun's not striking them nor scorching heat. Um, that's, I mean, that's an amazing contrast between those two chapters. Um, so, but that sort of raises a, a separate question. So the ones that are being sealed in the first half of chapter 7 are 144,000. So Dana and I um, caught a little bit of this uh, Saturday Night Live skit, and it was called What Up With That? <laughs> it was like this mock, tele it was making fun of like these TV shows and like, the host would be interviewing someone, and then all of a sudden would break out in song. Ooh, what up with that? So now, you know, anytime something's confusing in our household, we go like, "What up with that?" All right, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to explain the random things that pop into my head. So that's the background on the random things that pop into my head. So what's up with the hundred and forty-four thousand? Um, who are these? What are our options? Jehovah's Witnesses. <laughs> okay, so we have 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. So 12,000 from each tribe. So, um, so um, uh, we, we sort of have two parts. We've got the number and then we've got the ones being numbered. So, um, you know, do we understand uh, the identif those being numbered? as literal Jews, and do we understand the number as a literal number? Um, so sort of, so if we sort of think, if we're saying they're Jews, there are two ways people have looked at it. One as a literal 144,000 ethnic Jews, 12,000 from each tribe. Or um, some people will also say it's literal ethnic Jews, but it's a symbolic number, 144,000. So, you know, you can go either way. So sort of two ways of seeing it. Tim, you had... Yeah. No, Dan. It is a strange list. It's a strange list in, in lots of ways. Um, the ordering is, is odd as well. Usually Judah doesn't come first even though, you know, we think of Judah as being the most important. Um, so, yeah, it's, if we're looking at it as a list, well, what, sorry, Dan, <laughs> no 12,000 for you. Um, you know, it's sort of a, uh, there's some, um, yeah, there's some ambiguities about the list. Okay, so, so, and that's sort of moving us to the question I want us to go. Are these 144,000 different from the multitude, or is it referring to the same people from two different perspectives? Um, you know, so, so let me, let's, we're still sketching our options. So one, we have um, uh, a literal 144,000, a literal ethnic Jews. 
We have a symbolic 144,000 of ethnic Jews. Other options? So we got two up. Yeah, is the ceiling we're seeing here a distinct ceiling? Uh, and one of the objections usually raised to the um, using as uh, or using this ceiling as something specific to ethnic Israel is that well, then that would have to be, it would have to be a different we'd have kind of two different kinds of ceiling going on rather than seeing a uniform sense of ceiling being talked about. Yeah. Yeah, and to sort of think uh, in a New Testament perspective, we're, you know, it's, we're instructed to stop thinking in those terms. And, you know, in Christ there is no Jew or Gentile. Um, uh, and as um, Victor's saying, um, so the identities, are, our personal identity of tribal identity, for ten tribes it disappears with the Assyrians. With the other two it disappears with Jerusalem. So after the fall of Jerusalem, there nobody ethnically Jewish knows what tribe they are. Um, so uh, in a sense, this sort of ethnic identity has disappeared, um, you know, post-New Testament. Okay, so we can see, um, we can see it as uh, 144,000 being a, a symbolic number representing the totality of those saved, encompassing Jew and Gentile alike. And just like in parts of the New Testament, we see that specific language referring to Israel being applied to the church. So there's a way we can look at John sort of using that same kind of the language of Israel to describe the true Israel. All right, so... Just so to put us where we are, we've got four options on the table. We've got uh, literal 144,000 literal ethnic Jews to be saved in the uh, to be saved in the future, an infinite or not infinite uh, a you know perfect number of Jews to be saved in the future. We've got victors. This refers to Jews saved uh, the, the the Jews saved prior. To, to Calvary, so sort of seeing, again, and if we go back and, and if we do see chapter 7 as being um, sort of concurrent with chapter 6, you can see that the unleashing of the, the horsemen, this is taking place, the ceiling's taking place before then, so there's way well, you can even say that parts of chapter 7 come temporally before chapter 6. And now we have Chris's, this is a symbolic representation of the church. Any others? There's one more. I would have never have thought of this. Thank you, commentators. Um, 144,000 referring to um, referring to the redeemed, but the redeemed specifically enumerated for war. What? <laughs> And the, the argument as it goes is usually when you have a census in the Old Testament, it's a census for warriors. Um, so you're, you're enumerating people for battle. Um, later on in chapter 9, these 144,000 are going to be identified as um, uh, male virgins. Um, so again, sort of young warrior. Um, and so in this view, this is giving a picture of Christians who are expected to participate through spiritual warfare. Again, sort of ironic spiritual warfare by mimicking Christ, conquering through suffering. Um, so those are our options. <laughs>
So how do we sort through them? Um, uh, and the way we sort through them, I, I would say, is, is looking at the language we're giving here and the language um, we're given throughout Scripture. So I'm going to lay out an argument that's by no means original with me, but um, that, that would argue that the group in the first half of the chapter is the same as this multitude in the other half, being looked at from two different perspectives. And notice the language. John hears about these 144,000. And then he looks and beholds a great multitude that can't be numbered. So when he hears, he's hearing a specific enumerated number. When he looks, he sees a multitude that no man can number. So from one perspective, and again, think of it this way. Does God know who's saved? Yes. Could God name every person who's saved? Yes. Could God number every person who's saved? Yes. So the first part sort of is arguing for the particularity of of salvation from the perspective, from one perspective, the redeemed are a named, numbered group particularly chosen by God. But from another perspective, could we name everyone (laughs) if we looked at the redeemed? No, it's an innumerable mass of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So the first pictures the church as the restored remnant of true Israel whose salvific security has been guaranteed. God knows exactly everyone who has received his redemptive seal, and God precisely numbers his servants. The second picture in the second half of the chapter views the redeemed from the viewpoint of their actual vast number. There are a multitudinous throng from across the earth. That's what I'm selling. <laughs> no, I'm saying the 140 the 144,000 I'm arguing is a symbolic number. Uh, it's you know again it's one of those those perfect numbers that can, you know, mean beyond. It's like when Christ says, you know, when the, the person asks Christ, how many times should I forgive my brother? You know, seven times, no, seven times 70. And he doesn't mean, you know, like 490 in the sense that I carry around a clicker and be like, James Glover's up to 213, 214, 215. We're getting there. I don't have to forgive him anymore. No, it's sort of using that, those sort of numbers to, you're supposed to forgive an infinite. You know, you're supposed to keep on forgiving just as you. Um, I'm saying yes. Um, well, I'm, I'm putting that forward. Right. So Jews and Gentiles, I'm saying it's referring, the first part is a symbolic referring to God's multitudinous church as large. But from one perspective, God can number those people. God can name those people. From another perspective, when we look at it, man. This is a throng beyond description. Mark. And it's the way, um, it's the way in a sense, uh, I see this chapter as that fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. In one sense, Abraham is the father of the Jews. From him descend the 12 tribes. Through Abraham, the blessing comes to every nation, tribe, and earth. 
Um, so again, it's the, speci the specificity of the exactness of God's chosen people. The, then you have the perspective of the unlimited boundaries of God's people. From one perspective, they can be named and numbered. From another perspective, they are a multitudinous throng from the entire earth. Sure, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know me, I'm always open to uh, <laughs> all of the above answers. Uh, sure. No, and I, it's the way I sort of want to go both ways on this sometimes. I think God's, uh, in one sense, I'm firmly in the perspective that we are the new Israel, the church, um, that all the covenant promises fall on us. Um, so the promise to Abraham isn't just the promise for Jews, it's the promise for us. And all those promises we're the inheritors of. Um, and then there's the part of me that says God's, has not given up on Jews, the chosen people, and he still has an amazing work of redemption uh, to enact, um, and is enacting um, for those of us. For, you know. No. It's still the same. It's uh, the people who, and as we're getting to the last part of the chapter, the people who stand in God's presence aren't standing in God's presence by two different mechanisms. They're standing by the same mechanism, that they've had their, uh, they've been washed in the blood of the lamb, and so their robes are white. Um, that's the mechanism. Um, so it's not sort of two different options. Yeah, Mike. Well, you used the word remnant, so that's. No, and I want to say, and there's a way that's the, you're saying exactly, you know, especially because of Paul's text in Romans and, and, you know, continued language of this, there's a way I still see um, the, the same perspective, uh, that, that God is going to work uh, his redemptive purposes, continue to work his redemptive purposes, and Jew and Gentile alike, um, that it's not, uh, well, forget them, we're moving on, that there's still... Uh, this eschatological hope. Um, and I, I see that in this chapter. But I also see that, that this, these 12 tribes here uh, also can symbolically represent me as, and you as part of the new Israel. Um, I, you know, it's the way I made a cake today. There's the way I, I made my cake and I want to eat it too, so save me a piece. Um, you know, and... And it, part of that's me wrestling with scriptural passages, I think, that, that speak to both ways. Um, but I, I'm really struck by the sort of the idea of perspectives here and the, one we, and the way we view salvation. From one aspect, it's particular. It's precise. It's exact. In another perspective, man, it is uh, unboundless, you know, to sort of think God's you know, think of all that language we have, talk about, you know, uh, God's grace is limitless, you know, but hey, wait a minute, we're Calvinists, we say the atonement's limited. There's a way I can say limit and limitless and not be contradictory. And that's, you know, because I'm looking at it from two different perspectives. And that's the way I sort of see this, that there is this particularity that's being argued in the first part of the chapter. And there's a... Um, broadness uh, and, 
and um, again, the language he uses, he hears the particularity. You know, he, it's got to be enumerated for him. He sees, you know, something he can't possibly number, uh, people he can't possibly identify, uh, a throng that is just overwhelming. Um, you know, so that sort of, you know, just sort of think, well, you know, you hear about it and then you see, wow, you know, sort of two different perspectives there. Yeah, and it's the way, um, you know, to see it uh, as, as you say, they're the totality. Um, you know, we, it's not, you know, we can sort of have our clicker and sort of <laughs> 139, <laughs> 140, 141. You know, we don't know, um, but God does. And, and it, again, and that's the idea to go back to this picture of ceiling. You know, ceiling marks, and, and we'll see it, uh, the same kind of seal being applied. You know, here we see it, um, you know, these specific tribes. Other places in the Revelation, we're going to see sealing clearly applied to all Christians. You know, and we've already seen it. You know, you, know, you will be marked. You know, Christ's name will be written upon you. We saw in the letters to the churches. Um, so to see it, um, uh, to go back to Luke's point, um, to sort of, you know, do we see it as a different kind of ceiling? Do we see it as the same kind of ceiling? Uh, and as James emphasized, it's, it's coming to Christ through the same means, um, which gets the question I raised at the beginning, and we'll have to end on this one. But um, last week we saw um, humans fleeing from God and sort of taking ridiculous measures to hide themselves from the wrath of God. Um, in this chapter, um, we see people standing before the throne. So what is it that causes people to flee God and others stand? Again, and that's, I was just really struck sort of looking at these two chapters side by side. Last week, you've got this picture of people fleeing from God. In this picture, you have people standing before God. Last week, we saw terror. This week, we see, you know, as the chapter ends, complete peace, um, complete absence of worry. Standing and protected, standing and preserved, standing and being sheltered. Uh, okay, so we have two things there. So one, it's, it's God's sheltering presence. And uh, the other is uh, this redemptive cleansing. Uh, yeah, and in this chapter, and notice how, you know, that chapter we had the great wrath. This chapter we have, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. So it's sort of, you know, uh, you know, how do we understand those events? You know, to some it's going to be the unleashing of God's just wrath. The other, it's going to be the means by which people are brought out. And, you know, it's sort of, is the trial testing? Is this tribulation a test? Or is it judgment? And it's a judgment falling on some, and it's a test enabling others to persevere and demonstrate their witness. Same Yeah, I think John very much has the, that Passover event in mind as he's, he's describing both the ceiling and the being, you know, 
covered by blood. Um, yeah, I think he absolutely has that, how Israel was delivered from Egypt. And now he's talking about um, how, how God's people are going to be delivered from this evil world. Um, yeah, Andy. Yeah, and even in this chapter, we've seen those synagogues present, and we, we started to see uh, this distinction between, or, or what we saw earlier in the letter as synagogues of Satan, um, that these are Jews that are, have rejected um, the message of God. But I, you know, I'm really struck with this sort of idea of, of standing. Um, what enables one group of people to stand in the presence of this very God who in the last chapter they're fleeing and the complete opposite uh, results. You know, last week we ended with sheer terror, absolute despondency, no hope whatsoever. Who can stand? Well, this chapter we're given the answer. Who can stand? Those who've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Those who are in tabernacling with God. You know, God is their temple, their tabernacle. He is their shelter, their cover. Yeah, Mike. Yeah, and notice how, um, you know, we should be struck as we go through Revelation how many times we end up in doxology, how much we end up in songs of praise. Um, and here again, I mean, I was, again, I was really struck this week by, wow, you know, here's another great, you know, just sort of short song of praise describing the mighty works of God on our behalf. And it's, again, it's the, the they have that vision, that, that knowledge, that being in the presence of God, seeing the totality of what God's done, uh, uh, that... Salvation belongs to God. It's not just sort of a confessional, you know, statement. It's a song of praise. Yeah, Mark. Yeah, that, um, just as those, uh, the, the Jews in Egypt needed to have that blood sprinkled on their doorpost, um, and then they got to go out into the wilderness and tabernacle amongst God, and even then they could only come to God's presence covered with blood. It's, you know, this is not new. <laughs> this has been the story all along. You have to be covered with blood to stand in God's presence. Yeah, Ronnie. Well, and to sort of think how it's flipped. Earlier, you know, we, you know, without that kind of covering, everybody falls on their face. <laughs> and it's the angels standing in the presence of God. Now we have this picture where uh, people are standing in the presence of God because they've been covered. Yeah, Bill, and then we've got to end. Yeah, that that they're the ones who acknowledge what God has done for them. Again, it's not they're they're doing something to to earn this. It's what God and that's why they break out into praise, as Mike said. It's what God has done for them. It's what God's done for us. Um, you know, what a, a, a glorious picture we're given of what God has accomplished for us and how our future contrasts with those who are still exposed to the wrath of God. All right, let me close us in prayer. 
Almighty God, um, we confess that uh, we are overwhelmed by uh, the vision that you've given us, by the understanding of who you are and what you've done for us. And the only logical response for us is to do what we're going to do in the coming hour, to worship, uh, to give you praise for who you are and what you've done. Um, and we thank you for uh, how you do preserve and protect your people, that you have uh, numbered them and named them, that you've numbered us and named us. And it's not a, a limited number, but it is a throng from every nation and every tongue. It doesn't encompass one particular part of the world, but the entirety of it. What a great God, what a great salvation that you have wrought for us. And we ask that we, as we come to worship, that we would sing with joy, that we would sing with joy hope that even in this troubled and tumultuous world we would sing with peace knowing the heavenly certainties the present certainties and realities of your kingdom may it come come lord jesus come quickly amen <laughs>